Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On this episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the job support scheme and you ask us, why did we unlock over summer if Test and Trace wasn't working? So Rishi Sunak has announced his successor scheme to the furlough scheme. It's called the job support scheme, and it's intended to run for six months from the beginning of November. The difference between this scheme and the furlough scheme is quite a big one. This is designed to try and protect all viable jobs rather than try and keep everyone in their jobs, but staying at home, which is kind of what the furlough scheme was designed to do. To be eligible, you have to be able to work at least a third of your normal full-time hours And for the hours that you don't work, the government and your employer will each pay a third of those remaining wages. So that means that you can earn at least 77% of your pay, depending on how many hours you're working. Stephen, what did you think of this sort of partway solution to the unemployment that's around the corner? I mean, it seems to me like a very bad idea, right? In the... the explicit logic of um, Rishi Sunak's speech today and indeed of the measures is like, is broadly, this is not a thing that we need to live through, you know, where we basically go, we've put the economy on, on cryogenic suspension until such point that we can unlock. And then we just flick a bunch of switches and we bring the economy back to life broadly in the shape it was in February 2020. This is a, I was about to say a budget, I guess it kind of is and kind of isn't. This is a set of fiscal measures designed around the idea that this is something we will live with and that the economy will change as a result, which I mean, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. as, as long-term listeners will know, is a position I'm very sympathetic to and I think has a lot of merit to. The problem is, is that as envisaged, this just means a lot of people will lose pay. Many people will lose their jobs, right? Because like, if you are, you know, anything from an you know, event organiser to a constant pianist to whatever, right? You are, you know, if, if you are someone to, you know, a nightclub bouncer, right? Your, your job is still non-viable, right? You're not going to be working a third of your hour. Your job is still dead. You're still going to lose your job when the furlough scheme ends. And because of the way the cost of this works, it is cheaper to employ one person full time than it is to employ two people part time. So, of course, businesses will mostly do that or they will employ two business, two employers until January so they can get their grand of job retention bonus 
and then you go down to one part-time employer. So all of which kind of makes sense if you are going for the like, let's like transition economically. But if you do that, then you really do need to make universal credit more generous, end the housing benefit cap, not have the, the evictions ban ending, the looming eviction ban ending, not have the pairing back of all these other bits of support. And I think it kind of felt like essentially... Like the structural problem is that the government and indeed the opposition, I mean, this is less of a problem in terms of these measures, but I think the opposition would have a more coherent position if it had had this fight with itself. But neither Labour nor the Conservatives have sat down and gone, is this a live through or live with moment? And so the result is you kind of end up with like a budget, well, like a series of measures that have pointed in various ways. Like this is a measure that will like cause a lot of jobs to be lost in in hospitality and restaurants. Obviously, 500 million is no money at all in terms of government spending. But it is still a bit weird that we're literally doing this the month after we have that policy. And I think that's the kind of main thing. It's incoherent and it will be quite painful for a lot of people and indeed for the country as a whole. Alva, what did you think when you watched the statement? I think, I mean, I broadly agree with Stephen. I think on the point about whether it will be cheaper or, you know, whether it would be more sensible for a business to keep someone on full-time or have multiple people part-time on this scheme. That was a a question that Annalisa Dodds raised and Rishi Sunak was quite explicit that it doesn't make it more expensive to keep people on part-time, but I'm not exactly clear how that can be the case. I think there are lots of things where the detail will will need to be seen. I think that it's a more complicated policy than than other ones in that you are guaranteeing if if people can work a a minimum of of a third of their original hours, then they will get two thirds of the remaining hours covered by the government and the employer, which means a sort of a minimum of 77% of your wage, which I think is actually quite generous I think there there was confusion it looked for a a bit like you would only be getting two-thirds of your wages and I don't think that many people can live off that or you know with certainly not without you know remortgaging your home or moving house or changing your rent setup but I think the scheme itself if you're on it I think doesn't sound that bad which I think was one of the concerns similar to I think you know the the furlough being wound down slightly but I think that it's it's the concerns elsewhere around universal credit and like you say if you know if you run a nightclub like that's a unless it's a terrible nightclub you know that's a in theory a viable business if it was viable before the crisis it should in theory be viable again once there's a vaccine and this doesn't provide any sort of help with that and I, I wonder if in the literal case of something like a nightclub is there an incentive there to change or adapt for COVID times, thinking as, you know, as Stephen says about living through it, is there an incentive to then sort of remodel as a bar, accepting that you're in this for the long haul and that you can't just stay closed and and expect support throughout the crisis that you'll, rather than just thinking in terms of businesses that are viable or not viable, that businesses will have to adapt for the crisis and adapt back again but yeah I think that the main the main question is not the scheme itself but all the people who it won't help I think it's clearly so late in the day and I think it really was crunch point yesterday with the chancellor the the calls for extending the furlough were really reaching fever pitch and I think you know there were 
suggestions that ministers threatened to quit. So this is a kind of stopgap for that, which makes it look like there's some continuation of the furlough scheme. But ultimately, the furlough scheme is ending and the, the redundancies that we're expecting to see as a result of that are still going to happen, not least because the deadline for announcing whether people are going to be made redundant as a result of the furlough ending happened last week anyway. You've both mentioned it really. So there's, you know, there's not really much that I can add, but I did think it was interesting that he didn't mention universal credit, either in the context of making changes to accommodate everyone who has been on furlough since March and therefore won't be eligible for this new scheme, probably, or keeping in place the changes that were made for, for, to universal credit at the beginning of, of this crisis, which is something that a lot of charities are warning if those changes go back, then a lot of people will be in even worse economic dire straits. And without a budget this autumn, it's, you know, it's a bit difficult to tell whether whether they're planning any changes to universal credit to to make it more generous in this time, to make it more flexible in this time because of the number of people who are applying for it and their different circumstances. And, you know, people have really come up against some of its quite stringent criteria when they've tried to use it because they've got no other government help to turn to because of the pandemic. So I don't really understand why that was missed out. Like Stephen has often written it, it, it seems to be one of the easiest, most obvious levers to try and soften the blow of what the government seems to be accepting is an, is an inevitable number of people who are going to be made redundant by making a scheme that is nowhere near as, as generous or, or in any way similar to, to the furlough scheme. Because it's decided, you know, in Rishi Sunak's own words, he sort of, he talked about a more permanent economic change and he talked about adapting to a new normal. That's a bit... The new normal thing is a bit has become a bit of a cliche that means a lot of different things. But I think what he, what he meant in that context was this is the way our economy is now. These are the jobs that will no longer be viable in the age of COVID nineteen, and there's no there's nothing in place to try and help those people through that transition. The Labour politicians who have been scrutinising the statement, including Annalisa Dodds, point out the lack of focus on training as well. That's another thing that's been missed out or at least hasn't had the adequate focus and there's no suggestion without the budget of, of, of anything extra that's coming down the line for this. So it does feel a little bit like a rushed response for the business community, trade unions, Labour, and of course, you know, Conservative MPs themselves, some of them calling on the government to have something in place once the furlough scheme ends without thinking about the consequences of of a scheme like this for those who aren't eligible, which is very disappointing and, and really worrying as well. A lot of people have already lost their jobs. A lot of people are already claiming universal credit. So, you know, what is there for them? And there just doesn't really seem to be very much long-term thinking. If, if, if the government has decided that the economy is changing because of this and we can't look back, there needs to be a plan for people to transition into that new normal. And we don't really seem to have any indication of, of a plan there. Yeah, I think you're exactly right to to pick up on the the new normal idea that this is that we can't just freeze and preserve the economy the way it was before the crisis, expecting it to eventually be able to return to normal. Uh, yeah, and and that's the kind of the the scary thing that the definition of of what a viable business is has fundamentally changed between the initial announcement of the furlough scheme and now because you look at a restaurant like a profitable restaurant before the crisis will be a perfectly viable 
business after the crisis too but it may well be struggling at the moment and may well have to lay off staff or shut down completely for this new economy that's sort of being redefined as as not viable when the understanding in March was that those were viable businesses and that you could kind of freeze it I also think that the the rhetoric around this not just today but from the government in in general has been quite remarkable in that Boris Johnson made this case in PMQs and we heard it again from Rishi Sunak when he um, did his press conference earlier he they sort of talking about people sitting at home full time <laughs> the, slight, the slightly kind of moralized and I, and I can't remember exactly how Boris Johnson worded it but it, but in very similar terms that this sort of slightly moralizing line for the government that these people have been like you know sitting at home on their backsides for months you know doing nothing you know not even seeking new work da, 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 precisely because of the government scheme I think that kind of strange framing where you're blaming people for being on the scheme that you set up yourself and sort of saying that they can't be lazy any longer it is a bit strange because fundamentally lots of those people are still going to be sitting at home without work because of the economic crisis if those jobs don't don't exist it just means that they're, they're going to be given much less fi- financial support it's odd because in a way right i am semi-sympathetic to some of the incoherencies in today's thing Robbie, because and this is why I think it can't be separated from the wider incoherence of the government as a whole. Because if you're Rishi Sunak, right, like imagine that you're him and you're sitting around the cabinet table and you're looking around. I mean, you probably do. You would inevitably think, look, this bunch of jokers is never going to get test and trace in place ever, ever. It's not going to happen. Like real talk. Like what do we think then suddenly one day like Dom Cummings is going to wake up and be like, do you know what we shouldn't do? Hire someone's mates. Like he's just like, oh, so Boris can go, hey, maybe what I ought to do is focus on one topic at a time that will never happen so if you're the chancellor you have to plan for this to be something that goes on for a long time right but equally there's things you can't announce because you can't go as far as going i don't think that's why i think with with uc it's just that they have a kind of political sort of addiction slash imperative to this idea that unemployment is a condition which people just need to be punished to their way out of. But um, I think one of the other causes for the limitation is that like, if you can't go, yeah, guys, we're living with this for a long time. We were wildly optimistic about vaccines in a way that wasn't helpful and we can't get to grips with test and trace. You end up with like something which points in that direction but doesn't provide enough support. And I think that is why we are where we are. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
Now's the time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask us. us. So this is a question from an anonymous questioner. If test and trace is so critical to control of the virus, why is the unlocking strategy not explicitly predicated on staying within its limits? Seems to me they were just unlocking and hoping for the best. So essentially, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that this question is essentially asking if test and trace, you know, only had a certain level of effectiveness and also um, was only in place to a certain extent when they unlocked the economy in the summer. You know, why did they unlock the economy to the extent that they did? We're talking about this on the on the day that the government has actually released the contact tracing app, the one that was promised for May, but gravely delayed. And of course, the problems with test and trace itself we've spoken about a lot on the podcast already in fact we spoke about it on the previous section so Stephen why don't you pick up from there why were we unlocked over summer when test and trace just wasn't in place because various parts of the economy would have either required further subsidy or gone bust if we hadn't now obviously like many of our listeners and including many eminent economists do not think that that the spending constraint that Rishi Sunak imagines to be real is real or and many who do believe in it is a problem in the long term we're hugely indebted but it's not a problem that we should be concerned about now however Rishi Sunak is not one of your number and he therefore very much did believe that you did need to to unlock earlier I mean this is why I think like it's like the response is best sort of understood as a kind of push me pull you right you have like you push one thing and like the health indicators go ah, ah, ah. you pull one way and the like economic indicators go ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and essentially summer's reopening was driven by the economic lights flashing red the closing down we are seeing at the moment is being driven by the health indicators flashing red and the budget we have today is kind of based on a like wouldn't it be nice if we lived in a fantasy world where the government has decided to be open about the idea that we need to live with this, not through it. And that's essentially, I think, like the story of where we are today. But I suppose they must have known throughout summer that, you know, the thing that was supposed to help us try and live semi-normal lives was testing and tracing. I mean, we were promised a world-beating system and they must have, you know, already they knew that the app wasn't being delivered and they must have known that the test and trace system wasn't quashing the virus in the way that they, they had hoped. So I suppose, you know, you have a lot of sympathy with the government who's trying to rescue, you know, whole sectors from just crashing and burning, especially over summer, after people have endured months of of lockdown, you want to try and keep the public on your side. But it does seem strange that there wasn't very much levelling with the public. So, you know, we will let you eat out, we will pay for half of your meals over August, but... What implication does this have when we open schools? You know, when we open schools, you'll have to stop eating out. Why wasn't there sort of any indication of the balance that is trying to be to be held by by all of these different different manoeuvres? Why wasn't there any sort of rhetoric to to explain that? Instead, sort of semi blaming people once the virus started circulating again. I think in Boris Johnson's address to the country and the. The night before last, he said something about there being breaches of the rules. It's almost as if individuals are being blamed or, or individuals are being encouraged to blame other people for sort of blowing it for everyone. You know, I'm sure there are people behaving irresponsibly, but but we know that compliance is very high. And we also know that we were encouraged over summer without being told any of the sort of drawbacks to to our behavior if we if we went out to eat. We know that we were encouraged to do that. So So it does seem that the communications have been poor and disingenuous as well. Yeah, I think that the question is logic is 
impeccable in that you can clearly imagine a situation where if your only priority is the health response and managing the virus, you use a lockdown to suddenly massively reduce the number of cases and massively reduce the rate of transmission. And you keep doing that. You let the cases get lower and lower as you're building up testing capacity so that you're at a point as you unlock where you can perfectly trace where all of the new cases are and you can get their contacts to perfectly isolate. You really limit asymptomatic transmission. And then any unlocking is, you know, it, it goes in lockstep with the, the capacity of that system, almost arguably to a point where you actually could have more comprehensive unlocking if you have the, the case numbers down sufficiently low. But as Stephen was saying, like that clearly wasn't an option, that the economic imperative was there before they were at a point where they could do that. So you, we actually have a, a, a situation where this sort of the, the, the number of cases was already running away from them as they tried to build up sufficient capacity and it's only no I, I mean I think that this was just like plainly inevitable that the the testing and tracing wasn't really working at the level required mm-hmm. and that you know so quite flimsy social distancing rules and guidance around washing hands and some not very well enforced rules around quarantining when you return from holiday, you know, a really low level of statutory sick pay. This was this was all going to contribute to the, the cases rising again. And I think that there was really no question that if you just let that situation run on for long enough, this this is where we would be. But it's I mean it's just emblematic of of the government as a whole that basically I, I there's this like that biblical phrase that you know the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing I just think it every day looking at the tug of war between the health response and the economic response and I know that we we've all talked in the past about how you know one they aren't mutually exclusive and that you know a functioning economy is is pretty pretty fundamental to public health too but when you see the sort of the measures to alleviate the economic crisis being then and then tugging the other way the measures to alleviate the health response it just means that as a whole there's no real coherence and probably until you have an economic strategy and a health strategy that really like understand and mutually complement each other and reinforce each other we're just going to have like more sort of tugging back and forth between the health and the economic thing with like no real no real progress. I always thought, you know, I know that we've spoken about them not being mutually exclusive and that is that is absolutely true, but I always thought that the government was leaning more towards the economic side of things simply because of the low rate of statutory sick pay because there's not enough employment protections in place for people who work in an unsafe covid environment but but are being encouraged to go back to work you know people who who have been who haven't had the financial support while quarantining there were weekly tests promised to to people working in care homes that and there are still delays for those so it always feels like there's slightly more slightly more focus from the government on protecting the economy or at least not conceding certain in this grand scheme of things not very expensive concessions for people which means that they're not necessarily always focused on keeping people self-isolating when they need to 
and not working in dangerous environments as well. So all of those little, I mean, they're not little for, for people, you know, for people who are experiencing them, but maybe in the grand scheme of policy, they sound like small policy things. But all of those kind of build a picture of a government that's maybe not necessarily taking seriously the concerns of people who are trying to comply, but can't afford it, or are confused by the advice and and the balance seesawing from side to side, but the blame sort of falling on individuals. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.